Isaiah 11, 1 to 5. Of course, taking a break from our Mark series related to the Advent season as we remember Christ's coming. I'm going to read the text and pray for God's blessing to start things out. This is the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inspiring these words in your holy scriptures. Thank you for this portrait of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And our great prayer this morning for you is that you would open the eyes of our heart to see his glory. Show us who he is afresh. And if there are some here who don't yet know Him, we pray that the sight of His glory, the sight of His wisdom, of His fear of you and His righteousness would compel their hearts to draw near to Him in faith, to see how good He is as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who already know Him, we pray that once again we would see the One who rules us, the One who saves us, that our hearts would be softened and warmed to stir up worship in us. Father, please give me clarity and strength to proclaim these things in the way that your people need to hear them and please give all of us ears to hear do more than we could ask or imagine by the power of your spirit working through the word in us for the sake of jesus amen well of course it's advent season and we're anticipating christmas this is a time when we think about the eternal divine son of god who stooped down to take on human flesh and enter our world as one of us for our salvation. And in this season, the coming of Jesus fills our songs and it shapes our selection of scripture readings. Uh, Some of us may have nativity scenes in our homes. Some of us may be reading Advent devotionals or counting down the days with an Advent calendar. This season is thick with the consideration of Jesus' coming. And when it comes to preaching on the Incarnation, the Bible is rich with texts that we could hear from. We might turn to Matthew's genealogy and birth account to find out how thoroughly Jesus' birth fulfilled Old Testament anticipation. Or we might turn to Luke and see more about the historical background orchestrated and crafted by God when He sent His Son into the world. This is what we've been reading in our, our Scripture readings. Or we might even turn to the Gospel according to John, which doesn't have a birth account, but its famous prologue peels back the curtain of eternity and shows us the Word who was with God and was God, the agent of creation, who is life and light and who has come into the world in human flesh. 
But we won't look at any of those texts this morning. Today, we're looking at one of Isaiah's famous prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And as we do, the question that we are asking, the question to bear in mind is, why does it matter that Christ has come? Why does it matter that He's here? Yes, the story of His coming and the story of His birth is rich with theological implications, even the events that happen and the Gospels that narrate those events. But we can fill out the picture even further by looking at the promises that God had already made, anticipating the one that He would send. Why has He come into our world? Why did we need Him so badly? And these questions are important for us all the time. But there can be a special layer of importance for us now because as enjoyable and fun as the holiday can be, it is also not difficult for us to hit the bottom of its ability to make us happy. When you're a kid, if your childhood was like mine, Christmas Day is the peak of your existence. (laughs) When I was a kid, Christmas morning was seriously the closest thing I knew to heaven on earth. The anticipation was dizzying in the days, even hour by hour sometimes, the days leading up to Christmas. But as we grow older, Christmas can sometimes take on a little bit more of a mixed melancholy feel. I mean, for one thing, from a practical standpoint, it is an incredibly busy and stressful season. Some of us are feeling the crunch of that right now. How many more days to get out your cards? Things of that nature, wrap your gifts. But what's more, such a special holiday can even haunt us with the brokenness and the losses that we know in our dearest relationships. Sometimes these holidays that are kind of designed for family or the the dearest relationships where we most feel the sting of loss and brokenness in those relationships. Those childish days when nothing could be wrong on Christmas Day are behind many of us. Our sense of what is broken and what's lacking in the world has become much heavier and much deeper than a holiday can fix. So to get our footing in this Christmas season, we desperately need a God-given perspective on why Jesus came. What is the state of our world? And of course included, what is the state of our own hearts and our lives? And what difference does He make? This brings us to Isaiah's prophecy. A little word about the structure. Uh, Verses 1 and 5 provide bookends of summary statements about the coming one. He's imaged in verse 1 as a shoot or a branch coming from a stump who will bear fruit. And then in verse 5, he is imaged as a man who is clothed with a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. And within that frame, verses 2 to 4, we find the fruit that he will come to produce. Namely, first of all, godly character. So that's verse 2 through the beginning of verse 3. Godly character is one of the fruits. But then, what does that produce? Righteous judgment. That's the rest of verse 3 through verse 4. So we have kind of the the frame, verses 1 to 5, and then we have the fruit, verses 2 through 4. And the main idea of all of it is this. Jesus' coming brings the hope of heaven's justice to our desolate world. Jesus' coming brings the hope of heaven's justice justice to our desolate world. 
Jesus' coming is not just the concern of the 7th century B.C. in the land of Judah or the 1st century A.D. in the land of Judea where he was born. No, it's a piece of news that while prophesied all uh, those many centuries back and then fulfilled uh, in his first coming, this truth is meant to canvas our entire sin-broken world. It is a very relevant piece of truth that is meant to not only be heard as far as the curse is found, but to penetrate to the innermost places in our hearts. This is why Jesus has come. And that statement, that main statement we heard, there's three elements that we're going to bring out. This will be our outline. Again, I'll say the statement again. Jesus' coming brings the hope of heaven's justice to our desolate world. So the three elements we're going to bring out are desolation, hope, and justice. Desolation, hope, and justice. So first of all, the desolation of our unjust world. The desolation of our unjust world. Verse 1, we hear about the stump of Jesse. This is the first image we have, is a shoot growing from the stump of a felled tree. And we're not going to talk about the shoot yet, we're just talking about the stump. How did it get there? Well, there is a background for this image from earlier in Isaiah. The stump represents what God Himself has left behind after cutting off unfaithful Judah and their unfaithful Davidic kings. And of course, this throughout the Old Testament, as the kings go, so go the nation. They always rise and fall together. God had already predicted this back in chapter 6 when Isaiah is called to his prophetic ministry. The Lord told him that his ministry would be to proclaim God's word to the people and that the effect would be, the fruit of his ministry would be blinding their eyes and deafening their ears and making their hearts dull and heavy so that they could not turn from their sinful ways. That's literally what God says to him in verses 9 to 10 of chapter 6. This is what your ministry is going to be. And so if that's the case, it's not hard to imagine what the downstream effects of that kind of hardening will be. And the answer is destruction at the hand of foreign powers. So just a couple verses later, actually right after that in chapter 6, Isaiah responds to the Lord. Then I said, how long, O Lord? That is, how long will they remain hardened? And he said, this is the outset of his ministry. He said this to Isaiah, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And he goes on and says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. End quote. So in Isaiah's day, in his generation, the destruction would appear, surveying world events, it would appear to be coming at the hand of Assyria, the big imperial bully in the neighborhood. And indeed, they're the ones that took down the northern kingdom. But God would miraculously deliver Judah, the southern kingdom, where Isaiah is prophesying from Assyria, miraculously, you may know the story, he kills 185,000 of them overnight, chops that tree down. Nevertheless, this only delayed the judgment which would come through Babylon only a few generations later. The holy seed is its stump. You can see how verse 1 of our passage picks right up on this imagery Israel has been cut off due to unrepentant sin, but the holy seed promised all the way back in Genesis 3, near the very beginning of our Bibles, right after the first sin, the holy seed remains. There will be growth again. But like I said, it's not just the people, it's also the kings. And 
Uh, chapter 7 tells us the story of Ahaz, who is the king. He's the descendant of David. And remember, God's promises to David to give him an eternal reign to his offspring. Well, Ahaz has a chance to demonstrate faith, and he utterly fails, showing himself to be hardened against the Lord, no better than the people. So the place is a spiritual Wasteland, And we have descriptions of this, what it's actually like on the ground in the early chapters of Isaiah. Bleak portraits of rampant sin. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Kind of a general statement about sin, but we might ask what kinds of sin? Well, over and over again, the charge against them is social injustice. Rulers pervert righteousness. The powerful and the rich abuse the poor and the weak. So, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then a few verses later, verse 23, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. These are the most vulnerable groups in their society, the widows and the orphans, and they are abused by those who should be protecting them. And then all the way up to the beginning of chapter 10, he says this, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice And to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. It is a land groaning under the weight of perverted justice. And ours is hardly better. You take a close look at society, you take a close look at our world, and you'll see sin infecting everything. You'll see injustice everywhere. You'll see elected leaders that so often turn aside from justice just to protect their own political interest and scratch each other's backs or please their donors. You'll find policies that are made that often end up punishing the people who deserve to be protected and rewarded and are rewarding those who deserve to be punished. We have leaders pushing godless ideologies and signing them into law, things that make a mockery of God's created order. There are iniquitous laws or even just the unintentional effect of everybody making their million tiny little choices that end up grinding certain groups of people into the dust with seemingly no way to escape. This world is full of injustice out there at the societal level, just like Judah. But even looking at our own lives, aren't our own lives full of injustice? You and I commit sin against each other. You and I are victims of one another's sin. And sometimes deep injustices that make our souls grieve and feel the groan of the weight. We feel this devastation and ruin. We feel the desolation of sin and injustice. One of the reasons that the joy and cheer of the Christmas season happening around us outside may seem to taunt us and even torture us is because we are living in the effects of sin, either our own or sin from others against us. The world is broken. The world is sagging under the weight of injustice. And we all feel it in various ways. And it's no accident that politics consumes so much of our attention 
as a society and produce such a high proportion of our discontentment and grumbling. There's so much of an ecosystem of news surrounding politics. It can be a hobby that you never get to the end of knowing what's going on. And, And knowing more and more just seems to stir up more and more grumbling. We all sense deep and abiding problems with how the world is being run. And we instinctively know that we need a leader who can work justice. Who can administer a real, true, courageous, wise, righteous rule over us. And spoiler alert, we're going to find that in Jesus, in this text. But before we get there, we need to take the temperature of our heart's expectations. Do we expect true justice to gain a foothold in this world outside of Christ? Do we look to politics? Do we look to man's solutions for the relief of these problems? This is to have every new election... So many people find themselves going, this is, the, this is the one we need. Do you find your heart doing that? Who's the one we need this time? Who's going to save us? Who's going to fix all this? They sure love to present themselves as the one who can fix all this. Now, we should be involved in the political process. We should care as those who love our neighbors as ourselves. That's our call in Christ. We should care about taking legitimate measures to enact righteous policies. But God's word is testing us this morning and correcting us. If we think that real, deep, abiding justice will come from any source other than Jesus, we will be utterly disappointed. Everything else is just the stump of a cut down tree. I mean, this is Israel. This is God's covenant nation. They were gifted with all of the spiritual benefits and promises that you could imagine. Could they get it done? They're just the stump of a felled tree. It's not going to happen, my friends. If it couldn't happen there, it's certainly not going to happen here. So as you think about what's wrong with the world and about all that this world needs, how prominently does Jesus play into that equation for you? There's no lack of people who could claim to have the wisdom to rule. And there's no lack of proposals out there for how to run things that claim to be righteous. But the arm of flesh cannot get it done. It will take none less than Jesus Christ to set things right in our broken and unrighteous world. It's only this branch, ultimately, who will bear fruit. To think about a cut-down tree or even a whole forest of cut-down trees, you know, what is a depressing sight? Whenever you're driving by where there's been a forest fire, uh, if you've driven up to Tahoe and Highway 50 recently, you've, you've seen it's depressing. And there's some places where it's not only hillsides covered in just thousands of trees that have been burned over, charred black, but then in some places they're chopping them down, I guess, for lumber. And so it's like burned and then also clear cut. And so you have this burned over field of stumps. It looks so bleak. It looks like the end of the world. And this is God's depiction of the world that Jesus comes into. This is the, the work of our sin. This is what our world fallen into the curse looks like. So there's our desolation. Now let's talk about the shoot. Let's talk about, secondly, the hope of Jesus' coming. The hope of Jesus' coming. And this will... We'll look at verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 regarding the hope of His coming. This is the shoot that God promises to that will grow from that cut off stump. It says, There shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It's kind of interesting that the stump is attributed to Jesse, isn't it? That's kind of an obscure reference, a, a way of talking about David's line. Since Jesse, you may know, was David's father. But it harkens back to a time when David sprang unexpected from Jesse's lineage. It recalls the humble beginnings of the shepherd king. He came from uh, this family line from which you would not expect a king to come. And so it is with Christ. The royal line will be cut off in exile. And after exile, no son of David will again sit on the throne all through the six centuries before Christ's coming. So there's both continuity with the past and discontinuity. God will do something new, but He'll do something new in fulfillment of ancient promises. And verse 1 is, is it not a beautiful note of hope that life will spring from this scene of death, this scene of desolation? It's just a spark. You've seen maybe stumps that get cut down and this little sprig comes up, this new growth. And whenever you see that, God is reminding you of this prophecy about Jesus. It's just the inkling of a new beginning. It's not much in itself, but it's enough. And eventually it's enough of a foothold to grow into an entire forest. Now, if you've ever cared for plants, and if you've ever nearly killed one off, I've done that many, I've actually fully killed off many plants, but if you've ever nearly killed off a plant, isn't it thrilling to see some new little bit of growth somewhere? And you're like, I thought all hope was lost. And this little thing put out a new sprig. And you're like, oh, (laughs) it might make it. It just changes the situation. There's hope again. And as the rest of the text explains, this little branch springs up as just the beginning of much more growth. To even speak of him bearing fruit, I mean, it implies, well, there's a lot of growth in between one little shoot to the point of being able to become a mature tree that can then bear fruit. And multiply. That's what fruit does. It makes multiplication. And verse 2 explains the basis of this surprising growth. It is the reason for the stunning intrusion of hope. And it is the Spirit of the Lord resting on this coming branch. That's why He'll produce fruit. Now, if you hear about the Holy Spirit and you hear about fruit, there might be uh, neurons going off in your head about what the, the passage in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit This is a famous text. The the virtues that issue from Christ's people as they walk by His Holy Spirit. But Paul was not the first to link the Spirit to this image of plant growth. It it comes up even in Isaiah, this picture, the Spirit of the Lord appearing as an agent of new creation, restoration. And it often takes the poetic image of flourishing vegetation. So back in the summer we heard uh, from Isaiah 44 verses 3 to 4. The Lord says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. The the spirit is often linked to growth and restoration, even in a condition of, of arid desert wasteland. The Holy Spirit is a divine person and the Old Testament tells us that He shared in the divine work of creation. He was the one, of course, hovering over the face of the deep in uh, Genesis 1 verse 2. And as Psalm 33, 6 tells us, it was by the breath of His mouth 
that the Lord created all things. Now, of course, breath and spirit are the same word. There's this allusion to the, the Lord creating by means of his spirit. Often in Isaiah, when you hear about God rebuilding the ruins and his coming new creation, the spirit is not far off. Listen to chapter 32, verses 14 and 15. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until... You hear that stump? It's all desolation, until... The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And he goes on to describe that will mean justice, that will mean righteousness, that will mean peace. And in addition to these texts that use the that talk about the spirit in connection with growth and new creation, we also have texts that talk about the spirit as the one empowering the the coming servant of the Lord, the Messiah. This is one of these texts that the spirit will be upon him. The spirit will give life specifically by empowering the life-giving mission of the servant, the Messiah. And lest we miss We've got the Son, we've got the Spirit. What about God the Father? Do we have the whole Trinity here? Who is He in verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit from the Lord. The whole Trinity is right here in the first line of verse 2. The shoot who is Christ the Son is endowed by the Spirit who comes from the Lord. That is here referring to the Father. The reclamation project of the shoot is not a human affair. It is not a worldly affair. It is a heavenly takeover of earth. Orchestrated and carried out by the undivided work of the triune God. So when we see in the Gospels, Jesus in his baptism in the waters, and what does the Father say from heaven as he sends down the Spirit? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the kind of thing that's being anticipated. So what kind of fruit does the Spirit produce in him as he makes him fruitful? Well, verse 2 gives us three pairs of character qualities. This isn't all the Spirit does in him, but they're gifts that are especially well suited to ruling. The the role that he's said to play here in this text. And the, the items in each pair kind of interpret each other. They're meant to be taken as pairs. So first, we hear that he's the Spirit of, that's the Spirit who gives, wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the practical ability to discern good from evil. The, the very reason Solomon famously asked the Lord for wisdom in 1 Kings. He said, I want wisdom to do righteousness. Wisdom equips a ruler for justice, to see the true nature of things. And relatedly, understanding is the specific part of wisdom that sees to the heart of the issue. Understanding grasps what is truly going on. Amid what can in reality be very complex issues. The second pair is counsel and might. The spirit of counsel and might. This means that he'll be competent both to form plans and to carry them out. And we know that in the human realm, some rulers have very good intentions. They're they're great people in terms of character and they might have good ideas about what they want to do. But they lack the competency to devise good policies to get from A to B. And they can't bring it about. The coming king will have no such deficiency. And the third pair, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, regards his posture toward God. He'll have both the knowledge of God and the fear 
of the Lord. And as one commentator points out, knowledge of the Lord is, is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the essence of a creature's right relationship with its Creator. You've got to know the Lord. You're a creature made by Him. You don't really know anything if you don't know the Lord. And the fear of the Lord, as we hear so emphatically in Proverbs, is the foundation of all true wisdom and understanding. The fear of the Lord is the awe and reverence that acknowledges the Lord's awesome holiness. Like the angels in the throne room scene from Isaiah 6 in His call who are crying out in the presence of the Lord, Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. Fear of the Lord is a heart that says that. This is the character of the branch. He can discern the true nature of things. He can make righteous plans and carry them out effectively. And all of this flows from a proper heart orientation to the Lord. He has everything that human rulers lack. He has everything that we lack. But not only does he fear the Lord, but verse 3 goes on and tells us that he delights in fearing the Lord. Now that may strike us as odd. That may sound surprising. How could fear be a delight? Is that a contradiction in terms? Isn't fear the opposite of delight? Not at all. The the world is full of echoes of the fact that fear can actually thrill us. Fear can utterly delight us, even as it makes us tremble, even by making us tremble. It's why we go on roller coasters. It's why we look down from the rim of heights like the Grand Canyon. It's why if you ever see a video of something like two grizzly bears locked in ferocious combat, we can't take our eyes off of it, even as we shudder to imagine having to face one of those creatures ourselves. These things that make us tremble, but they also fascinate us. They also draw us in. The fear of the Lord is His delight. He loves trembling at God. He loves honoring and revering the Lord. And He loves living His life in His awesome shadow. And when we consider a ruler like this, doesn't it stir up hope in our hearts? That with all the brokenness of this world and in our own lives, all the groaning and sighing that we experience both as perpetrators and victims of sin and observers of grievous sin, just imagine being ruled by such a man. Well, thankfully, we don't have to wait. Jesus has come once and He's coming again. His rule over the world is not yet complete as it will be. But as His church, we are the beachhead of His new creation. We are the beginning of His kingdom. And so we've already begun tasting these gifts of the Spirit as Christ rules us, even as we await the coming fullness. And so there's two very good pieces of news for us today regarding this picture of Jesus. The first is that Jesus is this man for us now. He is the head of the church and this is our ruler. This is our king. He rules and saves and leads us as the righteous, wise, God-fearing man that we meet in this passage. And I would even invite you to read the Gospels looking for these things. Read the Gospels with this interpretive key supplied to us right here by God's Word. Where do we see Jesus fearing the Lord? Where do we see Jesus walking in wisdom and understanding? But the second good piece of news for us is that all who are in Christ, all who believe in Him, He has given us even now to share in the very same Spirit. 
The Spirit who worked these qualities in Him is working new life in us. So Christian, to walk by faith in Jesus and to walk in the power of the Spirit is to see these fruits increasing in our lives. And don't you want to be like this? Because of Jesus, we too can delight in the fear of the Lord. And because we fear the Lord, we can grow in true wisdom and understanding. And because in Jesus and through the work of the Spirit, we can start learning to discern good and evil. We can start learning how to make righteous plans and carry them out. Navigating all the complexities and challenges of the world with increasing competence in the fear of God. What could be happier than to be ruled by a man like this and to share in the same Spirit who makes Him so fruitful? Admire the beauty that the Spirit produces in Jesus and let this sight of His fruitfulness provoke us to hunger for the same. God has opened the doors, the storehouses of heaven for us. He's not only in Christ forgiven us of our sins through His blood, but He has begun a work of new creation and so that we can even enjoy the very beginnings of heaven on earth by means of the Holy Spirit. But then if God-fearing wisdom is the branch's character, that's the qualities of his life, what then will he actually do? That's what brings us to the, the third point, his work. And this is thirdly the justice of Jesus' work. The justice of Jesus' work. This is the rest of verse 3 through verse 5. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Because he fears the Lord, and because he sees how things truly are, he is able to carry out perfect justice. Now verse 3, when it says he won't judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, it doesn't mean he'll shut his eyes and close his ears when he judges. He won't be insensible. Rather, what it means is he won't go by mere outward appearances. Now when I mentioned, again, chapter 6, Isaiah's call, back then the Lord told him the effect of his ministry. We heard this. He is to say to the people uh, in verse 9, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And so even there, and this really is kind of a paradigm for it, you see it all throughout Isaiah, there's a kind of outer seeing, of superficial seeing, that does not penetrate to true perception of reality. And Isaiah's audience will be like that. There is a sense in which they will see, there is a sense in which they will hear, but they will not grasp reality. But not the Messiah. Our text says, no, he will not just see the externals. He won't just hear hearsay and rumors. But in perfect righteousness, he will penetrate to the heart of the matter. He will perfectly understand. Just as Jesus himself said in his first advent in John 7.24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And judging by outward appearances can drive justice off the rails. Uh, We can see this when voters are compelled by cheap slogans and careless thinking rather than a a sober consideration of the ethical implications of an issue. Some of us can find this so frustrating. People are being captivated by very careless thinking. 
And, and all of this, this superficial and wrongful judgment can be carried along so easily by the fear of man. One example of this is when parents correct their children for embarrassing public behavior rather than for disobedience. The parent's image is far more important than the true substance of the matter, which is the child's heart disposition. The fear of man can drive justice is based on external appearances, which is not justice at all. Uh, when verse 4 describes his true judgment, the objects of his judgment are the poor and the meek of the earth. And it should be clear, this doesn't mean he's judging against them, but he's judging for them. He's judging in their favor. And this is what happens when he judges things by their true substance, not just the outward appearance. The marginalized and the weak who are so easily denied justice finally get their due. Those who don't have a voice, those who are overlooked and easily trodden upon, they'll finally get their justice. Remember all those texts we heard from Isaiah talking about the social injustice in the land. Well, the branch will come ruling with true wisdom and with the fear of the Lord, and He will finally grant wisely administered righteousness to those forgotten, weak, lowly people. But on the other hand, finishing verse 4, the targets of his justice will be the weak of the uh, sorry, the wicked of the earth, whom he'll strike with the penalty of their evil. And we might imagine he would strike them with a sword, but what's his weapon in verse 4? What is his weapon against the wicked? It is his mouth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. He will pronounce a judgment that will be their doom. Now, if this sounds strange or hard to believe for you, is it any more difficult than God creating all things by his words? Can the one who created all things by his words, can he not uncreate by his words? Can he not exercise judgment and consign the wicked to eternal wrath by his words? Now, if we look at these prophecies about Jesus' judgment, both positive for the poor and meek and then the negative against the wicked, it can be a little bit complex in terms of how to think about their fulfillment. Because in a spiritual and partial way, they are here now. But in a full and final way, they await his second coming. For instance, uh, Jesus' words even today are already judging the wicked. Consider a text like Hebrews 4.12. Listen to this imagery. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word cuts through the heart. And just like the parables in the Gospels, Jesus' words cut and they separate and they judge. They penetrate into our hearts and divide us into the wheat and the chaff. Those who are the objects of His salvation and His beloved people, those who respond with faith, Versus his enemies who are just further hardened in unbelief. That's the spiritual situation now. Jesus' words judge now. But in the last day when he returns, he will destroy the evil in a more comprehensive way using what? His words. Listen to the picture of his return in Revelation 19. The scene where he comes galloping out of heaven to conquer his enemies. And guess what his weapon is? Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
So we see an already and not yet pattern. There's a sense in which judgment spiritually is happening now through the words of Christ, but it will be comprehensive judgment when he returns. And the same pattern holds for his positive judgments. Jesus would later begin his ministry in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, describing the kind of person that his disciples would be, the kind of people who are welcome in his kingdom. And guess what? Spiritual poverty and meekness make an appearance. He says in Matthew 5, verses 3 and 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is the situation today. Those who are humble over their sin, those who are able to see themselves as spiritually bankrupt and in need of saving grace, these are the sinners who receive the benefits of Christ's salvation and enter the glorious kingdom that He rules. These are the ones who receive His righteousness as a gift of grace. These are the ones He defends. These are the ones He goes to bat for. Now it's tricky because the the, the spiritually poor are not the same as the materially poor, but there is some overlap. It is interesting how in Luke's version of this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, we hear in Matthew, in Luke's version it says, blessed are the poor. It's not as though being poor and powerless is a virtue in itself, and it's certainly not as though being poor and powerless in this world qualifies someone for the kingdom of God. But as we've been seeing lately in Mark 10, the text we've been looking at, material wealth and earthly power tend to put people's heart out of reach of the childlike receiving of the kingdom of Christ by faith alone. So it's not as though the material poverty equals spiritual poverty, but there is a relationship. Those who are not materially poor have maybe a special spiritual danger. But one day when his kingdom comes in full, one way or another, those who were his people will have faced suffering in this world, will have been trampled in one way or another. That's what it's going to be to follow Jesus. And everything that they were deprived of in this life will see a full reversal, a full recompense, just as we heard from Mark 10, 28-31. So come to him, poor and lowly ones those who are bowed down by the weight of the world's sin and those who are bowed down under the weight of your own sin. Find in Him all your righteousness and all your defense. He is the righteous ruler that you long for. He is the righteous ruler you need. And if you've never trusted Jesus to save you from sin and to bring you into His kingdom, believe in Him today. Put your trust in Him. He says, whoever believes in Me has eternal life. And so there is hope in this low place because of the coming shoot, the coming branch. The mighty ones of the earth will be lopped down while the small and lowly ones will be lifted up. The day is coming. Our final picture is in verse 5 where he's clothed with a belt of righteousness and faithfulness. And I believe these two attributes are meant to explain each other. They, they, They go together. It's reliable and trustworthy justice that he exudes. And clothing characterizes someone. It's kind of their brand, their their outward presentation to the world. And just as I said earlier while discussing hope, these fruits of the Spirit, they are first belong to Christ. And first, our, our hope and joy is that they're ours because they're Christ's. But secondly, because we share in his Spirit, this new creation work means that God is restoring justice among us, his people that we can walk in these ways as well. Now, we're not kings. <laughs> we're not going to 
uh, pour out wrath upon the wicked of the earth. But to the extent that we have any authority and influence in this life, the Spirit wants to lead us in Christ to be people of true justice. While the world is prone to superficial and faulty expressions of justice, the church should be a place, a haven of true justice according to the true substance of the matter. In our relationships and in our corporate life as a church, the Spirit would make us to be those who listen carefully. People who press beyond first impressions to gain true insight. Uh, People who are honest and intellectually humble about what they don't know and don't understand. And people who call balls and strikes impartially. People who don't prefer the rich or the connected or the powerful. People who don't wink an eye and show partiality toward their friends, toward uh, the network of their connections the way the world can often do. People who are relentless about truth and discern according to the truth. In our midst as a community of Christ, the Spirit would make us to be a people who fear the Lord alone and no man. That means we don't fear each other, even in love. We don't fear each other. And it means as we face the world outside, we can stand up. And with equal parts gentleness and boldness, because we fear the Lord alone, we can declare the judgments of the reigning Lord Jesus Christ to the world. Friends, with the Spirit of God so working in us and leading us, let's strive and pray for the wisdom that looks beyond mere appearances. What we find imaged and expressed so beautifully in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. But even still, that whatever fruit that we bear as his people will only be a shadow of Christ, of what he does for us. And true justice, even among the church, true perfect justice awaits his coming. As Isaiah tells us elsewhere in, in chapter 42 about the Messiah, the coastlands wait for his law. All the different parts of the world eagerly anticipate his rule over us. Do you know what happens eventually after a forest fire? Eventually, the forest grows back. The growth starts slow. You see little bits of green popping up, but it spreads. And slowly and surely it spreads. And eventually, the forest is back. Look at the church, the first fruit of the coming kingdom. Look at how this shoot has grown, even now to this day, where so many parts of the world, his people call upon his name and are beginning to enjoy the first fruits of the new creation. He has not only borne fruit, but he has begun filling the ground with the seeds to sprout a new forest. He's poured out his spirit and therefore he's poured out his wisdom and righteousness and the fear of the Lord so that we can not only enjoy him exercising these toward us, but we can begin imitating it ourselves. Jesus' coming brings the hope of heaven's justice to our desolate world. Look at how Jesus fulfills the deepest groanings of the world and the deepest groanings of our souls. The world is unjust. We are unjust. And sin weighs us down. But hope has sprung. This beautiful little branch that has emerged from the cut-off stump. Life has begun rolling back death. Christ has come. Christ walked in the fear of the Lord. Christ walked in wisdom. Christ upheld perfect righteousness. Christ grants us His righteousness as a gift of grace to all who believe. Christ invites us under the shelter of His upright rule. Don't persist in unbelief today and face the terror of His words of judgment against you. 
Look to Him. Find all your defense in Him. All your life. All your hope in Him. Let's pray. God, we praise You for who You sent in Jesus Christ. We praise You for His just rule of us. We praise You for the gift of His righteousness counted as ours by faith. And we thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit who has begun working life and renewal in us. We pray that You would make Jesus precious to our souls. We pray that we would admire Him. We pray that we would adore Him and imitate Him by the power that You supply and that we would see increasing fruit in our lives and in our church that gives You glory. We we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.